Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Ben Craven and today I'm joined by Dr. Bryce Wilkinson and Leonard Hong. Last week, Bryce and Leonard published their report, Walking the Path to the Next Global Financial Crisis. They launched it with a webinar uh, with Sir John Key and it was widely reported in the media. I thought today would be a good opportunity to recap the report and also gain a few further insights into their findings that might not have been published in the media. Bryce, Leonard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. All right. uh, First off, Bryce, can you give us a bit of a background uh, on the report? What were the main findings? What, What sort of evidence did you uncover? Well, the main finding is, is almost stated in the title of the report that our key conclusion is that the major countries in the world are indeed uh, walking the path to causing the next global financial crisis. The, the two things which, of course, is the greatest concern and prompted the report is twofold. Firstly, the major central banks have lowered their controlled interest rates as far as they dare, and in the case of the Bank of England, to an unprecedented degree, and that's saying a lot when you remember it was formed in 1694. And they've also pumped liquidity into their domestic uh, financial system and thereby the global financial system to uh, an extraordinary degree, and again in the case of the Bank of England, it's an unprecedented degree. At the same time, um, through the global financial crisis, which started off as a banking crisis, the same governments um, bailed their banks out, which gave them a major uh, public debt problem. And that did not get turned around before the onset of the COVID epidemic. And so that's seen um, at New Zealand and elsewhere, but the major banks is a particular focus, the major economies. That's in public debt ratios, um, and we're talking here Japan, the US, uh, the European Central Bank, which is the Eurozone countries, and the Bank of England, really pump up their public debt ratios to uh, quite extraordinary levels for peacetime. They have been higher in wartime, although we've discovered to our horror that by 2024, on Congress's US Office of Management and Budget projections, the US debt ratio, debt held in the hands of the public, is actually set to exceed its World War II peak in 2024, the way the government's doing. And that won't include the uh, increased spending that Joe Biden is currently getting through to Congress. Uh, Just to give another illustration um, for Europe, before I pass over to Leonard, um, under the Maastricht Treaty, which was uh, one of its founding documents, the maximum public debt ratios there for to be considered viable for being a member were 60% of GDP. And at the moment, only seven of 22 countries are within that. About half of those are Scandinavian countries. And for the, the biggest economies in the EU, they're well above 60%. That would be all right if the prospects of um, returning to more normal settings for monetary policy and for public debt ratios was likely to happen. And we're somewhat pessimistic about that, and I'll pass over to Leonard to explain the, the grounds for concern there. 
Yeah, uh, thanks, Bryce. Uh, as you rightly point out, it's uh, across the major uh, industrialized economies like the United States, uh, the UK, the European Union, and other developing developed countries. Um, it's true that governments uh, have ratcheted up debt, and when you look at uh, for instance, uh, the Eurozone, uh, debts have been continuously going up, well well above 100%, uh, obviously, in Italy. And at the same time, net interest payments have been going down. I think uh, now it's about uh, 1% of GDP, and that's just alarming. Uh, and the same thing is going on in the United States, uh, Japan, and others. So there is an inverse correlation between the two. Usually um, during recessions, you'd expect um, restructuring of debt or reform, but on the contrary, um, as uh, interest rates dropped, governments have been induced to borrow more debt, uh, not less. Uh, and that's a persisting problem, and that's why uh, we are heading towards uh, greater uh, you know, financial problems that we go down the line. So that sounds like governments are in a pretty uh, sticky situation. Is, is it just governments, or is this also a problem for private companies and individuals as well? Yeah, it is pri- um, private companies and uh, the financial sector as well. Um, I mean, this, if I may, uh, Ben, it, it started with the chairmanship of, of Alan Greenspan at the Federal Reserve. Um, every time there was a downturn, he intervened in the market. So um, he did this during the 1994 Mexican pesos uh, crisis. He did this during the Asian financial crisis of 1997-1998. He did this during the LTCM uh, crisis and also the dot dot-com bubble. So what this meant is it essentially provided the belief that authorities would intervene and bail out those people who borrowed huge sums of money to take those big risks. Um, And in terms of, this is what we call the moral hazard problem. Um, And it's not just Greenspan. Uh, During the beginnings of the GFC, uh, when uh, the stock market the stock market crashed and Lehman Brothers fell. The Fed authorities did the exact same thing again, except they decided to print the money as well. And so um, it's, 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 it's all an interconnected problem, is that you have people who are in the private sector who think, oh, well, the Federal Reserve or other central banks would intervene to bail me out. And so there's, there's, there's no risk. Uh, but that's, that's absolutely wrong, is that risk is part of the free market. Right, so how did we get to this point? How do we get to the point where these companies are in, uh, encouraged to take greater risks than they otherwise would be, um, where, where you've got governments that are heavily indebted? Uh, surely we must have learned from past mistakes. Uh, well, there's a saying, right? Uh, you know, uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart, you know, prominent economists, wrote a book called This Time is Different. It's a very sarcastic way of thinking, oh, there's no such thing as risk. Uh, you know, this time there will always be uh, the financial, financial crises won't happen. And there were legitimate uh, mainstream economists that were making this claim. But unfortunately, as we all know, some, when something goes up, it needs to come down. Um, and But this problem, actually, when you think about it, Ben, I mean, the, in, in our report, we cover all the way from the gold standard, uh, the rise of bread and woods. We cover the end of the gold standard under Nixon. Then we talk about the rise of um, stagflation and the correction through inflation targeting. Then to uh, you know the great moderation period, and then um, you know the GFC, and up until today, uh, uh, COVID nineteen. But the origins is basically excessive um, easing, uh, easy monetary policy. You know, um, in relation to the moral hazard problem. Um, central bank authorities continuing to lower interest rates every time there is a downturn, which ironically created more uh, risks to the system. 
Right, that all sounds very grim. Uh, Bryce, how, um, how is this likely to, to play out? You've outlined a few different scenarios in the report. Can you briefly take us through them? Yes, well, the, the mainstream one is, is the one which organisations like the IMF and the World Bank and the OECD um, really are obliged to, to promulgate, and which isn't being cynical, but those organisations can't get up and say, this is going to be a disaster, we're going to forecast the next Great Depression. So the hope which they forecast is that um, economic growth will slowly pull the world out of this. There won't be another major downturn uh, that aborts that process and happens too early. Inflation will stay under control so central banks can keep interest rates low and that's good for their governments who are such heavier borrowers and like all big borrowers need interest rates to stay low. And so unemployment will, will reduce and um, the world will work its way through it. Uh, that also requires that governments don't use the extra revenue to pump up their spending. We see reasons to be a bit pessimistic about every one of those steps. Uh, CPI inflation has suddenly leapt up after a long delay um, in the US, Europe, elsewhere, New Zealand, Australia. Um, so that's starting to come uh, unravel the system where central banks can keep inflation uh, interest rates low, saying that's okay because inflation's still below their target. That's getting a little, little difficult. It's also get difficult to see governments actually um, using revenues to reduce their deficits and not increase their spending. Um, we seem to be in a world where people think social credit prevails and uh, uh, almost every day of the week you see governments promising to spend a few million more and you know they're already in deficit and all that's going to be, all they're doing is spending more borrowed money and it's hardly causing concern. So our three um, scenarios which we think are, are more realistic but are unfortunately more pe pessimistic um, all, all involve difficulties for the real economy apart uh, output and employment. Um, one of them is sort of a 1970s stagflation scenario where governments seek to get themselves out of their debt problem by devaluing their money. And that's quite plausible, we think. The next one is what we more label the Japan scenario, who went through the 1990s and the next two decades with low interest rates, mounting public debt, but low inflation. So that's just a low, slow grind, and Japan's been doing it for 30 years, and its public debt ratios are still highly excessive from any normal standard, so they still haven't worked their way through it. And then the third scenario is, is really a Great Depression scenario, uh, which no one wants to see, but that could be what happens unless... Um, the, the the major governments find a, a better way out of this problem. Gosh, it all sounds pretty grim to me. Um, if you had to pick one of those three scenarios as being the most likely, which would you say it is there, Bryce? That's not something the report does, um, but we can say some general things from the history of countries which have got into these situations in the past and how it's panned out. 
and from them perhaps we could give more guidance about our scenarios. But Leonard's the one who's done the, re the surveyed the historical research on um, how things have been experienced by other countries. So I'll pass over to him to relay that. Yeah, uh, throughout economic history, we've always seen crises in the form of uh, inflation, stagflation, uh, banking crises. And this was documented in uh, Carmen Reinhardt at Kenneth Rogoff's work, uh, This Time is Different. But Reinhardt documented five different scenarios, which is how uh, governments might be able to get away from this current state of, because governments have always had high debts before in the past. Uh, one is strong economic growth with high productivity. The second is, you could say, fiscal adjustment, where they cut spending in areas and you could say buckling the belt, essentially, to try and lower their uh, deficit or uh, budget deficit or debt levels. Uh, the third thing is obviously sovereign default. Uh, we've seen this in Latin America in the 1970s, 1980s, so a way of basically restarting things out, but although that could be uh, catastrophic. The fourth is uh, high inflation. Uh, governments are able to print the money uh, through central banks, although that is a form of highly politicized uh, central banking. And uh, the final form that Reinhardt uh, mentioned is the form of financial repression which is essentially governments mandating investors and uh, uh, the private sector to forcefully buy uh, government bonds at a lower rate uh, than inflation. Another form it could be uh, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the United States forced people to hand over their uh, privately held gold. Um, and so there are many, many forms of governments basically cutting their debt away, uh, but out of those five, well, we're not sure, but likely um, looking at global trends, uh, when you look at the price of, uh, you know, you could say uh, commodities and uh, goods going up, the 1970s or 1980s, in, in our view, is probably uh, more probable. Yes, uh, I think the financial repression we're all already observing, and that's when uh, the inflation rate is, is a lot higher than the interest rate on money in the bank. And so people with money in the bank tend to be an easy target. When governments have borrowed in their own currency at a low interest rate, then their, their incentive to increase the, have a higher inflation rate than the interest rate is pretty strong. In, sometimes in the past, they particularly think of Germany and um, Japan after World War II, very strong economic growth is quite a possibility because so much destruction has been wrought and so and unemployment is so high. And then, you know, the Victor nations have also been helpful in creating credit and, and opening up to capital. So that's not really a scenario we're looking for easy, fast growth from that period. China's had very fast growth just from um, picking up on Western technology and access to its markets. But perhaps that's largely run its course too. And um, uh, the good grounds for thinking its economic growth will be lower than in that catch-up period. So low growth is something which is common to all three of our more pessimistic scenarios. And the two big conversations I'm choosing between them is, will it be inflation or not? And the second one is, how serious will be the low growth uh, unemployment problem with sort of a Great Depression scenario? been at the extreme, something that we all hope, have to hope would be, uh, will be avoided. There is some grounds for optimism, optimism about avoiding it. Um, economists are largely agreed 
that the 1930s Great Depression was at its worst because of monetary policy uh, mistakes. Um, it doesn't mean that avoiding those mistakes would not still see real problems, but hopefully um, there are grounds for a little bit of optimism there. But really we've got no magic ball and we know that economists aren't really much better, if any, uh, than anyone else at predicting downturns. So that's why we leave this for readers as uh, food for thought to make up their own minds about um, which scenarios would be ones they'd really want to take precautionary measures against. Far out. Well, um, I, I guess I might round things off now with a very self-interested question, and that is, what will all this mean for house prices, both for people that own properties and uh, those looking to buy? Can you give us any sort of predictions there? Well, what we all have to see is um, prices falling relative to incomes because the the ratios of median house price to medium income in New Zealand is just calamitously high at the moment. And um, you know, I was told a poignant anecdote um, yesterday by a lady of someone who had apparently paid two million dollars to buy a two bedroom house. I think she said in Lyle Bay in Wellington, and both sets of parents had to put money into the house to help her make that purchase, which means that if house prices do drop sharply relative to income, which is what every new home buyer needs, they, that will be three sets of households who are in financial difficulty. Now, I'm probably one of a small proportion of the population who was around in the stagflation of the 1970s, and I remember house prices really climbing up enormously while Norm Kirk was still alive and Prime Minister. And then the oil price shock happened, the real economy turned south, unemployment rose, and inflation took off, and it was a long struggle. And I think in the next decade or so, house prices didn't really fall, but double-digit inflation saw real house prices fall by about 50%. So... If you'd started off with a median house price to income ratio of 10, it would have been down to about 5 at the end of that period. So that's, um, so that's not too calamitous. Um, you know, you don't have civil war in the streets and um, people smashing up downtowns. It's sort of a slow, a slow destruction of wealth. And, and that's why governments often go for inflation. It's, um, it's a more insidious form of tax and might be therefore more tolerable and it takes a prolonged period of time rather than a sudden death or collapse of, of everything with you know, mass unemployment in just 18 months or so. So that's, that's in our minds is still a plausible scenario. Right, that's a lot of food for thought. Um, here's hoping, I guess, that uh, this time is different somehow, right? Uh, thanks, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson and Leonard Hong. Listeners can view their latest report, Walking the Path to the Next Global Financial Crisis, on our website at nzinitiative.org.nz. Thank you. Stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events.
sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.